greetings and welcome to episode 33 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today, our topic is nationalists versus communists. Basically, what we're going to be talking about is the 1920s, this complex, very confusing, and ultimately depressing uh, decade, which is, you know, so pivotal for the events of what's going to happen in modern Chinese history. The major political parties, the major political formation and ideologies that animate the Chinese political world today will uh, uh, emerge during this pivotal decade, the 1920s. All right. Now, in previous episodes, we have covered the 1911 revolution, and more specifically, we talked about the instability, the, the political, social, economic instability um, that occurred in the wake of the 1911 revolution and the death of President Yuan Shikai in 1916. Um, our last episode, we talked about how this instability further stimulated the exodus of Chinese art and antiquities abroad during this exact same time period. Now, the most important point for today's immediate context that we need to understand is that after the death of President Yuan Shikai in 1916, remember, this is the guy who is basically continuing the late Qing dynasty, the, the Manchu court's uh, re-centralization and modernization policies that we talked about known as the new policies in the first decade of the 20th century. He's continuing them in Han guise, you know, no longer a Manchu-led court. Now it's a Han military strongman who's taken over the new republic, but he's basically got the same political economic uh, agenda as his Manchu imperial predecessors had before him. And indeed, he himself will attempt to don the cloak of imperial prestige by declaring himself emperor in, in 19, late 1915, early 1916, uh, only to, to die uh, six months later when the whole enterprise comes crashing down on him and he fails. Okay, And with his death in 1916, this you know, couple years in which he had managed to reestablish some semblance of stability, and a strong central state in China uh, comes crashing down. It comes crashing down. Okay, now we talked about that. It wasn't just that he himself died. All right, it's not like all of Chinese, modern Chinese history, the chaos and instability that follows is because, oh no, Yuan Shikai died. Isn't that a shame? Everything goes to shit. No, 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 no. Okay, the reason Yuan Shikai failed and then subsequently descended into ill health. Uh, was because of the Japanese imperialist encroachment on China in 1915 with the, with the advent of World War I, sort of sidelining the Europeans. The Japanese step in and say, we're going to take over so this foreigner imperialist enterprise in China. They, they force the 21 demands on Yuan Shikai, and that pretty much torpedoes his political legitimacy. And when he goes... All semblance of central authority, political authority, and stability in China uh, simply disintegrates. And we have what we know as the Warlord Era. The Warlord Era officially begins in 1916, usually is seen as going for about 12 years or so as far as uh, warlordism throughout the entire land. Okay, from Guangdong in the south to Manchuria in the far northeast to Xinjiang all the way in the, in the distant northwest, warlords are in control everywhere. All right, now they didn't talk about it as the warlord era. No warlord likes to think of himself as a warlord. 
Okay, but in hindsight, we say, no, no, this is a very different type of ruler. These are all individuals with very individualized personalities. They don't have sort of a, a coherent political philosophy. They don't have a party organization. It's pretty much this one guy with his strong personality, his control of the military, uh, it's this one guy in each province or a portion of a province or a couple of provinces, whatever it may be, um, who is running this local enterprise. And they don't really have the things that we think about that constitute a sophisticated political party. All right, And they're out for themselves. When this guy dies, his political program dies with him. When a warlord is assassinated, that's the end of his administration. Political parties outlive their, their founders, okay? They can survive an assassination. Even a successful assassination doesn't assassinate the entire party infrastructure, okay? With warlords, it does, because the warlord is the entire political program, okay? Now, in many parts of the country, war, the warlord era continues all the way until 1949, all right. There are many parts of the country that uh, the Nationalist Party, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, will not succeed in eradicating uh, all the way until 1949. What we talk about in 1928 is the moment in which Chiang Kai-shek and his Nationalist Party is able to found a new capital in Nanjing and get lip service declarations from all the warlords in the country that they are now joining his party, respecting his party as the new legitimate central government of China. Okay, Even though in actuality, many of them will still come to exercise their individual authority. We're going to talk about all this. Okay, However, our episode today, our focus on the 1920s, this is when we start to see things change. A little light at the end of a dark tunnel of 12 years of unchecked warlordism. Okay, as the famous short story fiction writer Lu Xun would say, this is when we begin to see the first signs of a road being made. Okay, it's not a full-fledged road, but a little path out of the dark warlord era is starting to be trodden. All right. Now, also, the last thing we got to establish before we get into the narrative here is our terms. We're going to be talking about two major political parties who still, to this day, play a huge role in the Chinese political world. Okay, just because the Civil War uh, uh, ends with the communist victory on the mainland in 1949 doesn't mean that the nationalists disappear. Oh no! If you know anything about what goes on here, you know that they fled to Taiwan and they're still there today. Okay, so these parties are still relevant today. All right, the first one, and the one that has the longest pedigree, is the Nationalist Party. Now, think of Nationalist with a capital N, all right? This is confusing because we also have Nationalist with a lowercase n. And Nationalist with a lowercase n is, is someone who believes in the nation as the primary basis of political legitimacy. This is what I identify with, my nation, this homogenous nation, the Chinese nation. It stretches across all classes. It goes way back in time for 3,000 years. That's a thing. It exists, and I believe in it. These borders are sacrosanct, and to violate them is to infringe upon China's sovereignty. Okay, It's a relatively new way of thinking about political authority to base the legitimacy of your rule on the nation and not on something, an abstract concept like virtue, like the emperors of old did. In the old days, your loyalty was individual. You were loyal to the emperor or the ruling family or the person right above you. 
All right. Now, no, you're supposed to say you're loyal to a nation. Okay. Think about, you know, when, when you grow up in American classrooms or whatnot, probably most classrooms throughout the world, you have to recite some sort of a ritual of loyalty to your nation. In United States classrooms, it's the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. You're not pledging allegiance to a person. You don't pledge allegiance to the president of the United States. You pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of this nation, this abstract thing that you can't touch, that doesn't actually exist, you know, even. In the old days, you would absolutely pledge your allegiance to the emperor. <laughs> the emperor, and that's it. And when the emperor dies, you die with him if you're a loyal servant. Your loyalty was not to an abstract nation. All right, so we've already talked about this many times. I just want to go over this again. The Nationalist Party, with a capital N, though, they are nationalists with with the lowercase n. They do believe in this thing called the Chinese nation, and they are basing their political legitimacy and right to rule on their stewardship of this nation. However, the capital N means that it's a translation of the Chinese word for their party, the Guomindang, which is literally Guo country, mean people, dang, party, country, people, party, <laughs> okay, nationalists, all right, but just don't confuse that entirely with lowercase n, because it's a slight difference in semantic meaning, although there is some overlap. The acronym, which is often also used for the nationalist, originally it was KMT, because KMT was how the Guomindang, that's the Chinese word for this party, that's how Guomindang used to be written, In the old Wade-Giles system of transliteration for Chinese words, when you write them in a Western alphabet, the old transliteration system before the communists created the pinyin system in 1955, the old system was known as the Wade-Giles system. And then that system, the Guomindang party, uh, was written K-U-O-M-I-N-T-A-N-G. So you take the three uh, uh, letters that begin each syllable and you have KMT. And then when the communists create pinyin in 1955, eventually that'll be adopted by the rest of the world. And in pinyin transliteration, uh, Guomindang is written differently. And those three letters at the beginning of each syllable are not KMT anymore, they're GMD. All right, so, you know, I, I like to use the pinyin one because I grew up learning pinyin, so I often will say either the GMD or the Guomindang or the nationalists. Right, get used to all three of those terms coming out when we're trying to refer to the exact same political entity. As for the communists, Gongchandang in Chinese, uh, you know, common property party or public property party. Uh, description of the ideology of communism. Uh, usually, though, that the Chinese word for this does, doesn't get adopted as the acronym uh, because communism was introduced to the West through you know Western writers, uh, German, Marx, uh, the Russians, and the Soviet Union and whatnot. So we'd usually, we're not, not going to use a Chinese term to translate that. Uh, it's just usually referred to in the English term, you know, communists. So the Chinese communists are the Chinese Communist Party, and the acronym for that is the CCP. So usually when we talk about them, we're going to say the Chinese communists or simply CCP. All right, it's, it's, it's good to be familiar with these different acronyms because I'm not going to explain them every single time that I have to refer to this or that. All right, so what we need to get to here, what we need to start at the beginning of the 1920s, how do you get the formation of these political parties. 
Okay, that's the question. The formation of the Nationalist Party and the Communist Party in China. All right, now, what we're, what, 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 what we're referring to is the establishment of what are known as Leninist party states. Because the model for this sort of party is going to come from Russia, from the Soviet Union after the Bolshevik Re Revolution. That's the model that's going to be exported to China. Um, and it's going to be directly exported to China by the Russians, by Russian communists. Okay? Here's how it happens. All right, now, the GMD, the Nationalists, they actually had already existed for a while. Remember, this party in various incarnations had existed since the last decade of the Qing Dynasty. All right? The 1900s, that last decade, the first decade of the 20th century, the Guomindang had been around. Okay? Sometimes they had different names, the Tongmenghui, the Revolutionary Alliance, this sort of thing. Um, and Sun Yat-sen was seen as someone who was integrally involved in the early history of this party or the inspiration for the later incarnations that it would take. But in these early years, it didn't succeed. It had a very turbulent history, um, and it was often suppressed by those who were in power. The Qing dynasty suppressed it, and the uh, Yuan Shikai after 1911 also suppressed the Guomindang. All right, it was seen as a threat, and it wasn't yet a or organized along the lines of a Leninist party state. It was much more amorphous and changing and ad hoc, putting it in a little coalitions of like-minded revolutionaries together for a common purpose. They fail. Some of the members get their heads cut off. Others flee into exile. And then they try to regroup somehow uh, in, 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 in a new guise. All right. By 1921, the GMD is in shambles. All right. The CCP doesn't even exist yet. All right, this will all change with the Bolshevik victory in the Russian Civil War in 1917. Well, it starts with the Russian Revolution in 1917, the Bolshevik victory um, in Western Russia, St. Petersburg, Moscow, those areas, European Russia. Um, that'll be largely in place by 1919, 1920. Uh, they won't completely win the Russian Civil War in Eastern Siberia or Asian Russia, until 1923. Uh, but you'll start to have the trappings of a new socialist state, the world's first socialist state, uh, by about 1919, 1920. Okay? Uh, when the Bolsheviks managed to start to win the Civil War in Western Russia. Now, the discourse, the stuff that these Russian Marxists said, that things like the people like Lenin, the sort of things that they said and broadcast to the world in their speeches and in newspapers, aroused a lot of global interest, as you might expect, particularly in China. Why? Because this was an ideology that was of the West, seen as, you know, to be of the West means that it's modern, because anything that's uh, seen as modern, cutting-edge, revolutionary, the next big thing. It has to come from the West, such as the prestige of Western culture, Western civilization at this time period. Okay? And this was a unique ide ideology, though. The, the Soviets, the Russians, were denouncing Western imperialism as an exploiter of the oppressed peoples of the world everywhere in the world. It had a class based lens, an economic-based lens to criticize the oppressed workers in every country everywhere. And the upper classes 
were criticized as exploiters everywhere in Western countries, in, 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 in Asian countries. And so this was something really brand new in China. Here is an ideology that comes from the West, so it must be modern, it must be cutting edge, and yet it criticizes the West. We've never seen an ideology that does this. A Western ideology that criticizes its own origins. Well, this is very palatable to non-Westerners who are looking for a means, looking for a, a, a foothold to criticize the West themselves. They say, well, this could, this could be really useful for us. I like this. People, you know, Westerners who are willing to, who are willing to criticize themselves. Not only that, but the Russian communist also offered a comprehensive plan of economic development for industrial latecomers, which all non-Western countries are going to be viewed as. And they come to the progressive social agenda. Let's alleviate poverty at the expense of the rich. Well, if you're in a poor Asian country, this sounds pretty swell. And the kicker, the clincher, was that the Russians then, the Bolsheviks, even went so far to renounce the old czarist imperialist privileges in China. That was a big deal. They said, whoa, it's not just a bunch of talk. These guys put their money where their mouth is. The Bolsheviks were the first Western state to voluntarily relinquish imperialist privileges in China. And that gained them a lot of fans in China and turned a lot of people on to Bolshevik ideas, to socialist ideas. What a progressive ideology that's finally come out of the West. This is how we can align with something that is seen as modern and progressive and yet still criticize the West, where these ideas come from. Isn't that wonderful? Now, just a little footnote here. The Russians, the Bolsheviks, will eventually uh, 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 renounce their renunciation of those imperialist privileges and try to backtrack on that. Um, but at the time that they did it, it was seen as, you know, uh, quite eye-opening that they would that anyone would voluntarily uh, uh, give up imperialist privileges, you know, un unequal treaties and all that sort of stuff. Now, the Soviets were also interested in fomenting revolution abroad because they initially thought that the success of their own revolution depended on the success of revolution in other countries, the success of the international revolution. Russia was seen as no place for socialism to take root and thrive. It wasn't supposed, the revolution, the socialist revolution was not supposed to start in what was a poor, largely agricultural country populated by peasants. No, 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 no. Socialism was supposed to rise up in dense, well-developed urban economies, places like Germany and England that had, you know, a, a history of recent industrialization, a large group of exploited workers in factories, the proletariat. And it was their disgruntlement that was supposed to lead to a rising of workers, an entire economic class against their oppressors and then redistribute the wealth, all right? Socialist revolutions aren't supposed to take place in poor agrarian countries. And here's the irony of the 20th century is that the two biggest ones will take place in poor, overwhelmingly rural, peasant-populated countries, Russia and China, okay? But at the time, 
The Bolsheviks were saying, we got to foment revolution abroad because this is very likely. Uh, we're going to be wiped out here in Russia and the, and the success of our revolution may not last very long. We need, to, we need to cultivate revolution in other countries in order to safeguard our revolution or else it's all going to disappear just as fast as it came. We're just going to be a flash in the pan. So how did they do this? They created an organization known as Communist International in English or, sorry, or the Comintern, okay? And the Comintern is going to play an instrumental role in exporting Russian Bolshevik revolution outside of Russia, all right? These are, these are secular atheist missionaries, <laughs> okay? Uh, they are ideological missionaries for a class-based political program. And they will go to China and say, we need to foment revolution in China, among many other places in the world. Okay. So, in China, by 1920, just three years after the Bolshevik uprising, just a year or so after they've started to consolidate power in European Russia, you begin to have Marxist study groups in major urban uh, cities in China. And in 1921, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is formally founded in Shanghai. Okay? Now, the CCP membership is going to be very low for many years. All right? We're only talking about them now because we know what's eventually going to happen. All right? We know eventually they're going to take over. But if, we, if, if it wasn't for that later success, we wouldn't be talking about them now because they were totally insignificant at the time. In 1921, you know what the membership of the CCP was? 57 people. That's it. Two years later, in 1923, perhaps 200 to 300 people. That's pathetic. Four years later, 1925, still less than 1,000 people have joined this party. Okay? They were nobodies. They were nobodies at the time. Who was a somebody? Well, I'll tell you who was a somebody. Sun Yat-sen. He was a failed somebody. He had become sort of a running joke sort of the symbol of a revolution that is destined to fail over and over and over again. A guy who uh, wants to save China but keeps getting kicked out of China and can't go back on pain of death. Well, what's Sun Yat-sen doing in the early 1920s? Well, the Soviets think that Sun Yat-sen is a attractive candidate to start investing. To start investing their revolutionary program in. And they say, how about we find Sun Yat-sen and we make a proposal to him? We will reinvest in the reconstitution, the recrudescence, the rejuvenation of the Guomindang, the Nationalist Party. Because that has some brand name recognition. It has a revolutionary pedigree that goes way back as well. And Sun Yat-sen, God bless his heart. <laughs> God bless him. Uh, but with all these failures, maybe, you know, we can actually make his revolution succeed at last. And they say, you know what? Even though we've got a communist party in China now, the membership is, is a total joke. Um, and communism in China is a long ways off because just like us, they're a poor rural country. You know what we need to do first in China? We need to unite the country first. We need a strong central government first. And only Sun Yat-sen still has a legitimate, unsullied revolutionary pedigree and reputation. All right? It helps when you're you know, in exile 
you never have to get your hands dirty and you never have to compromise your principles. You can have, you know, broadcast lofty statements to the rest of the world about revolution and never sacrificing and stuff and never have to face the realities of complex, difficult politics. Uh, so it helps. Sun Yat-sen hasn't really been sullied by having to actually do anything in China yet. He keeps getting kicked out before he can do anything. So the Soviets say, we want to go with Sun Yat-sen. Communism is still far too divisive an ideology. The foreign, the foreign imperialist powers in China are too strong. They're not going to let a communist party get off the ground. They're still trying to destroy us back in Russia. So they find Sun Yat-sen, and in 1922, they discover that Sun Yat-sen is still trying to consolidate his own base in the, in the far southeastern province of Guangdong. That's the province that is immediately across the border from Hong Kong. All right, they speak Cantonese down there. Uh, Sun Yat-sen is also originally from the south. Remember, Mandarin Chinese from the north was not his first language, and he was never uh, completely fluent in it. Okay, so Sun is down there trying to ally with warlords, something he's been doing for a while now. What warlord can I try to attach myself to um, and hopefully gain more influence and take over the military and steer it towards my aims and reconstitute my party? And it was, it was, this was destined to fail. He wasn't having a whole lot of success working with warlords because warlords, predictably, were about themselves and they weren't going to cede power to Sun Yat-sen willingly. So the Russians find him and they say, all right, let's send him some advisors and a whole lot of money. And by the fall of 1923, yes, you have Soviet advisors and Soviet aid are pouring into the, the city of Guangzhou where Sun Yat-sen is based. And in January of 1924, the Guomindang Party is formally reorganized on a Leninist party state model. What is a Leninist party state? Well, let me tell you what the features of a Leninist party state is. These are the things that warlords don't have, or maybe they only have one of them, but not the others, or they're all pretty underdeveloped anyways. The first thing that a Leninist party state has is they have ideological indoctrination. Right? They have ideas. They have lofty, abstract principles and goals and things that they talk about. All right? About bettering the lives of the people. About saving the nation. All right? This sort of stuff. They may be a whole bunch of, you know, hogwash. Uh, I don't buy into this stuff at all. Um, but I'm, you know, that's me. I'm really cynical, as you've come to understand from over the course of this podcast. All right? What was the Nationalist Party's? Uh, ideological indoctrination for anyone who became associated with the party. It was called Sanmin Jui, usually trans translated as the three principles of the people. And to this day, I can't tell you what the three principles of the people really means. Okay? It's a bunch of vague, you know, vague, lofty concepts about, you know, uh, improve the livelihood of the people strengthen the political institutions of the country, blah, 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 the stuff that politicians say. We're all used to this now because almost all politicians are associated with parties. And they're highly organized and they know how to churn out this political nonsense, this political doublespeak in which it sounds like they're saying something that's really lofty, that's really noble, and yet when you try to look for specifics and everything, you're like, what the hell does it actually mean? Yeah, good luck trying to figure out what, what, what any of this stuff actually means. Okay? But they have it. That's the point. They have it. Warlords don't really have a comprehensive ideology. Okay? Uh, the Guomindang now does. Samin Jui. Even if you don't understand what Samin Jui is, you're, you're supposed to think that, ooh, this is a formidable, sophisticated philosophy. All right, they have a plan for me, and they have a plan for China. I'm on board. 
even if you don't understand what it is. And most people don't have a clue what Samin Jui is. Ask someone who grows up in Taiwan today who went to school and they have Samin Jui pounded into their head every single day since, you know, kindergarten. Ask them, you know, when they graduate high school. So, what does Samin Jui mean? What is three principles of the people? Yeah, I'd like to hear what the response is. I've never heard an intelligible response. All right. Second feature of a Leninist party state. Democratic centralism. Democratic centralism. And this is where the Bolshevik model of a political party is a little bit different than, you know, the political parties that you might think of in the United States or in Britain or in France. All right. Democratic centralism means discipline. All right. It means ideological discipline. Yes, you have democracy. You have a group of rulers. It's not just one dictator. It's not an authoritarian state. There is democracy. A group of people get together and they discuss ideas like mature adults. And they air out their grievances and what they think the party should do. And they even solicit opinions from the rank and file party members. They want to make sure everyone feels that they've been involved in the formulation of policy and major decisions. But in the end, a small group of people gets together and after listening to what everyone had to say, they make their decision. And so the democracy is centralized democracy. Most of the democracy is a facade, the soliciting of everyone's opinions. All right. The real democracy is this eight to 10 people who are at the center of the party. Later, it'll be referred to as a Politburo. Okay. Who make the real decisions. Again, it's not one dictator. It's a group of people. But the democracy is limited to that little group. And when and once they make their decision, once they say, this is what we're doing, we've, we've listened to what everyone has said, we respect everyone's opinion, we're glad for your feedback, but hey, this is what we decided to do. Everyone in the party falls in lines or you are out of the party. There is no dissent. That's democratic centralism for you. Okay, and then finally, the third feature of a Leninist party state, military discipline and training. Again, something that warlords, sometimes they'll have it, but it's sort of in fits and starts, and it's not really reliable. All right, you have a new military institution, some sort of an academy, some sort of a military training school with, uh, you know, standardized ideological indoctrination. The, The military officers who are running the schools are not just, you know, Technicians, they don't just, you know, know the best way to do a military drill and line up and march and shoot your weapons and whatnot. Okay, they too believe in the three principles of the people, believe in democratic centralism. All right, they're disciplined people who believe in stuff. And they're the ones who are in charge of turning your military into a group of disciplined young men who will win on the battlefield and feel like they're winning for the sake of something. We're fighting for something larger than just the big man at the top, the warlord. We're fighting for an idea. Okay? Now, with the Nationalist Party, this military discipline will take the form of what's known as the Wampoa Academy. W-H-A-M-P-O-A, the Wampoa Academy. That's the English version that got institutionalized in our uh, orthography a long time ago. It's an early trans, tra- tra- transliteration of Huangpu, the Huangpu River, which was ran in the area. The Wampo Academy is going to be this military school that trains the, 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 the new officers for a revolutionary army and trains the rank-and-file soldiers. 
Okay, they're going to be very different than the soldiers who fight for warlords. All right, now, once you get the reconstitution of the Nationalist Party and the formation of the CCP, the Soviets decide that we need a coalition. We don't want all this chaos of two different parties, both of whom are associated with us. All right, both the CCP and the GMD trace their institutional genealogy back to the Soviets. Modern China is indelibly stamped with Russian socialist ideas from the very beginning. Both parties, okay, can thank the Soviets for allowing them to gain a foothold, a new lease on life, especially the nationalists, all right? The Soviet advisors will urge and urge and urge and eventually put a lot of pressure to the point where he's kind of, you know, feels like he's obliged to accept a coalition with the Communist Party. He doesn't really want to do it. He doesn't really want to do it. But the Soviets lack faith in the Communist Party's strength. They're too small. So they say, we like having a Communist Party in China. They're the apple of our eye because we're communists. They're our favorite of our two children in China, <laughs> right? But they're the weaker one. They're the weaker one. So we need to force them to work with their bigger brother, the GMD, our other son <laughs> in China, all right, for the time being, until they both reach adulthood, and then we'll see then how we're going to make one brother kill the other brother, okay? Neither party is enthusiastic about admitting the other, as you might imagine, because these guys are steeped in their ideological, you know, discipline and indoctrination, and they really don't like the idea of having to compromise their principles by merging with another party whose principles are different than their own, but they don't have much say in the matter. The Soviets are advising and financing both parties, okay? So what they want can't be ignored. And anyway, Sun Yat-sen is pretty impressed with the skill that the Chinese communist comrades have in organizing workers in factories. He says, calls it their mass touch, their touch with the masses. He says, hey, they're pretty efficient, well-organized organizers. They know how to organize a worker's strike at a factory pretty well. These guys are efficient. But Sun Yat-sen is terrified of the idea of class struggle. He's terrified of the idea of class struggle. And so he's still wary about letting the CCP party members, as few as they may be, uh, working on, you know, in the same premises as his own GMD party members. So he insists, okay, fine. We will admit, we will work together in a coalition with the CCP. But... The CCP members must join the GMD as individuals. They must also be card-carrying Guomindang members. Maybe a symbolic gesture at best, but he still wants to insist on having that symbolic gesture. Now, the comrades of the CCP, the Chinese communists, bitterly resist this requirement. They think it'll mean the extinction of their party if they're forced to join the Nationalist Party formally. But they're forced to submit. That's democratic centralism, and the order comes down. You submit to Comintern Discipline, Communist International. We said you guys are going to work together. We're funding you both. You, you both owe your very existence to us. All right? As two, two, two boys in China or two sons, you're sucking at our teat. And you're going to do what we say. And they do. Now, thankfully, both the nationalist and the communist agree on two things. First, we need to overthrow the warlords. Second, we need to kick out the foreign imperialists. All right, they do have common ground on that. 
After they do that, however, their goals sharply diverge. The Nationalist Party, they say, you know what? After we kick out, after we uh, overthrow the warlords and kick out the foreigners, we want to uh, attain gradual progress towards wealth and power under the guidance of an educated, propertied class without social revolution. Chinese communists say, yeah, we like that bit about attaining wealth and power. That's great. We, we, we want to do that too. But after we do that, we're going to implement social revolution, class-based revolution, and we're really going to shake things up. Okay? So there, their, their, their ideologies diverge very significantly. Now, during this coalition, and we refer to this coalition in 1924, 1925, as the first, actually a little longer, uh, it's going to go all the way until 1927. From 1924 to 1927, this so-called first coalition. The reason it's a first coalition is because there'll later be a second coalition. Once the parties diverge in 1927, uh, then 10 years later, in 1937, when the Japanese invade and you have to make common cause against the Japanese, the communists and the nationalists will come together once more for the second <laughs> coalition. All right. But now we're in the first coalition. All right. During the first coalition, the practical division of labor in trying to make progress is in mass movements versus military power. Mass movements, the organizing of workers, because that's where you're supposed You're not organizing peasants now. This is an urban-based movement. That's what communism is supposed to be. Okay? Uh, the communist members here are working in the cities, and they're going into the factories, and they're handing out pamphlets, they're giving speeches, and they're trying to urge workers to rise up, demand better wages, unionize, go on strike, whatever they need to do. And they successfully organized major strikes in the city of Guangzhou, in Shanghai, where factory conditions and foreign-owned factories were miserable. All right, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Obviously, it should be pretty easy to foment worker strikes and discontent in factories where foreign imperialists are exploiting, are, are exploiting them pretty bad. Okay, but this is dangerous work too. These factories are lot, lot, lots of time owned by foreigners. Foreigners don't like to see their profits disrupted when their workers go on strike. And the warlords who are actually running these jurisdictions... They get complaints from the foreigners who say, we're not going to be selling you any more uh, machine guns if you're going to allow these strikes to go on. And that warlord wants those machine guns. He wants to be on good terms with the foreigner. So he goes in and he breaks up the strike. And CCP members could be caught. They could be executed. It was dangerous work. So the CCP members absolutely knew they needed the protection of the Nationalist Party. Because the Nationalist Party is where the guns were. That's where the military was. Okay, the Guomindang was very much more closely associated with the Wampoa Academy. The Wampoa Academy will be churning out officers loyal to the Guomindang Nationalist Party. Okay, now the CCP thought that it had, it had political officers who were working in the Nationalist Party and that these men would gain access to the military, but they were wrong. Okay, they were wrong. The CCP was kept at arm's length from the Wampoa Academy. All right, if you want the protection of the Wampoa Academy, then you need to be on good terms with that wing of this coalition. 
All right. So the communists are going in and doing dangerous work of organizing strikes. The 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 nationalists are consolidating a, a, a military machine that will eventually be capable of wiping out the warlords throughout the country. Now all this progress was slow and halting initially. Okay, uh, not a ton of impressive progress was being made until the May 30th incident. What is the May 30th incident? It occurs, as you might expect, on May 30th, 1925. All right, a very important date in Chinese history. What happens in the, uh, uh, to cause a major event on May 30th, 1925? Well, about two weeks earlier, on May 15th, a fight bro broke out between Chinese workers and their supervisors at a Japanese-run mill. Okay, in Shanghai. Conditions are probably pretty shitty, as you might imagine. And you end up having Chinese workers, you know, probably inspired a little bit by CCP propagandizing in their midst. Uh, have a, you know, a scuffle with their Japanese supervisors. So the Japanese order their soldiers to open fire on the Chinese in their factory. And they kill one and wound several others. They kill people. This is Chinese soil. Yeah, it's in a foreign concession, but it is it's still China. In response, you get a lot of students who decide to hold a protest in Shanghai, and this protest eventually grows to have several thousand people. And during their march through Nanjing Road in Shanghai, they march up to a British-run factory. And the British say there is an unruly mob at the gates, probably inspired by communist agitators who we loathe. We need to take measures into our own hand, and they order their Sikh policemen, Sikhs from India were often taken by the British and used as security personnel throughout their empire, they order their Sikh policemen to fire on the crowd as it approaches the gates of the British factory. This is on May 30th. Killing 10 people and injuring more than 50. That's the May 30th incident. Okay? Immediately after this, you get major boycotts of foreign products. You get student demonstrations in major cities throughout China. Worker strikes will bring many urban cities to a standstill. This is the fallout from the May 30th incident. All right, so it was quite big. All right, it's quite big. It was a clash with foreign imperialists. And it was sort of unorganized. It didn't seem to be uh, manipulated from start to finish by any sort of organized political power. This was an or a relatively organic thing. However, outrages like this, imperialist outrages like this, had happened many times before. What's so different this time around? Now, there is a propaganda machine in place to harness the public outrage. Okay? The communist and the nationalist parties. This isn't just students anymore. This is a disciplined political organization that has the media outlets and sophistication and organization and an army to achieve these aims. What is the result of the subsequent propaganda that the Nationalist Party and the Communist Party will put out in the wake of the May 30th incident? The May 30th incident is a godsend to the Nationalist and Communist Party. They go from pulling teeth to get new members to join their parties, to suddenly having a wave of people join their parties. 
Membership among both the CCP and the GMD will soar after, May, after the May 30th incident. And sympathy for another revolution. We need another revolution. This is the beginning of another revolution. Okay? The first 1911 revolution failed. Now this is the real revolution. In one year, the CCP goes from 1,000 members to 30,000 members. Just one year after the May 30th incident in 1925. Okay? For the first time ever. Popular nationalism, elite politics, military discipline, and party power are all aligned. And this is the first time that you start to get foreigners, foreign diplomats, foreign businessmen in places like Shanghai who start to express fear for their own livelihoods. They say, who knows what these agitated Chinese might do next. They could inflict bodily harm on us. They could destroy our factories. This is a force that we may not be able to control. We can't just keep shooting on the Chinese when they, come, when they march into the streets. And so Western diplomats, in the wake of the May 30th incident, they start to, to express support for the idea that if there is a revolution in China, if you restore order, if you end the, the rule of these capricious warlords, we will gradually relinquish our imperialist privileges in China. Just lip service now. They haven't actually done anything. But the May 30th incident is the first thing that really spooks the foreign community in China. Okay? Further emboldening the nationalist and the communist party. We've actually managed to do something that scares the foreigners. Now, the next big step is what we know as the Northern Expedition. Alright? The Northern Expedition. The Northern Expedition is going to take place... In 1926, 1927, it's going to be the military campaign that takes the Nationalist and Communist Party out of their base in Guangzhou, out of the Wampo Academy, and strike northward and try to defeat several different foreigners and consolidate a big chunk of the country. What is the background of the Northern Expedition? It begins with Chiang Kai-shek. All right, uh, a major figure in modern Chinese history. Going to be around for a very long time. Going to be on the world stage for about 50 years or so, from the mid-1920s until his death in 1975. Chiang Kai-shek is from Zhejiang province. That's the province to the immediate south of Shanghai. All right, also considered a southerner. Okay, Chiang Kai-shek had gone to school in Japan. He had a lot of military training. Uh, he had played intermittent roles in various revolutionary uh, events and agitation movements in the late Qing and the early Republic, All right, but also spent a lot of time in Japan. And when, and when Sun Yat-sen bec uh, becomes ill in late 1924, early 1925, Chiang Kai-shek will manage to position himself as Sun Yat-sen's heir. And what happens with Sun Yat-sen? Uh, Sun Yat-sen gets sick. He has cancer. All right. Uh, poor Sun Yat-sen, been, ag been agitating and fighting his whole life to start a revolution in China. This revolution is finally coming to fruition in 1924, 1925, and he dies. Um, and he actually dies on a trip to Beijing to, to uh, have uh, open up talks with, I believe it's with Zhang Zoling, a uh, northern warlord in Manchuria. I believe that's the one he's talking to, uh, trying to discuss ways that they can merge their power together. And perhaps one of this warlord will join the Nationalist Party. Um, and while he's in Beijing, cancer takes him. And he dies in March 1925. Um, this deals a major blow. This deals a major blow. 
to the Communist and Nationalist Party. All right, he has no clear successor. There is no one with his pedigree, revolutionary pedigree, who's been in the business this long. Uh, no one with his prestige and name brand recognition. Chiang Kai-shek at the time was Sun Yat-sen's choice to lead the Wampoa Academy. That's going to prove to be his ace card. This is where Chiang Kai-shek's power comes from. It's going to come out of the barrel of the gun because he's in charge of the military. All right. Now, back then in 1925, there were many other possible contenders to take over the mantle of leader of the Nationalist Party. Okay, Wang Jingwei, Hu Hanmin, Liao Zhongkai. And all these four men, along with, you know, these three men, along with Chiang Kai-shek, making four, will start jockeying among one another in the, in the wake of Sun Yat-sen's death to take over the mantle of leadership. Now, two of them are going to be taken out pretty soon. Uh, Hu Hanmin will organize the assassination of Liao Zhongkai, and obviously that takes out poor Liao Zhongkai, who's dead, but it also takes out Hu Hanmin, who, once you know, once everyone knows that you were, you ordered someone's assassination, um, that pretty much takes you out of the running <laughs> to become the leader. Uh, that leaves just Wang Jingwei and Chiang Kai-shek. Okay, uh, and Wang Jingwei is a name worth knowing because he's going to be around for a little while. And during the, the Second World War, uh, the war with Japan, Wang Jingwei will make the decision to stay behind and work with the Japanese and run their puppet government in central China. He will not flee with Chiang Kai-shek. Part of that is because he was never quite able to wrest enough power away from Chiang Kai-shek. Wang Jingwei never quite accepts Chiang Kai-shek's leadership of the party, and he has a lot of influence in the civil uh, sphere of the Nationalist Party, whereas Chiang Kai-shek is going to have more control over the military, which is obviously the more powerful uh, arm of the uh, party to control. Wang Jingwei, in general, will also be seen as a little more to the left, leftist ideologies, a little more sympathetic to the communists, okay? Um, whereas Chiang Kai-shek will increasingly drift towards the right and be seen as more conservative and much more hostile to socialist ideas, okay? He'll also be more conservative in cultural matters as well, as we'll talk about later. It'll be Chiang Kai-shek who will start to revive Confucian ideas, uh, who will decide we're not going to simplify the Chinese script anymore. Uh, there's nothing wrong with Chinese culture, like the May 4th movement and the uh, new culture movement before. All these writers like Lu Xun saying that we're such a corrupt, disgusting society that's been around for so long and we're cannibals and we all eat each other. He says, no, 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 no. Chinese, Chinese civilization is quite beautiful, actually. And we need to rehabilitate that and not overthrow our culture. Right, he's going to drift in that direction. Now, in early 1926, okay, in early 1926, the CCP is emboldened by their success in the wake of the May 30th incident. Both the Nationalist and the Communist will benefit in terms of party membership, but the CCP will be exponentially uh, 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 outpacing the GMD in recruiting of new party members. And they begin to be emboldened by this, and they take the initiative. All right, they start to go out and more openly try to instigate worker strikes, recruit new people for their party, and this worries Chiang Kai-shek. And so in 1926, you get Chiang Kai-shek uh, starting to cultivate a backlash, gain support within the party for a backlash against the CCP, who he warns are getting too powerful now. They're making better use of the May 30th incident than we are, and they may overshadow us one day. So he says, you know what? This is our party, okay? 
The Soviets forced you to join us. We're still the ones in charge, and I have the military. So he passes new regulations limiting the influence of the Chinese Communist Party. First, he says no communist will be able to serve on the Central Executive Committee or be or serve as the head of any Nationalist Party department. Two, no Communist Party member can hold more than one-third of any position on a, on a GMD committee. And generally speaking, members of the, of, of the Guomindang, not the CCP, will hold all major positions of power. Okay? And if you don't like, if you disagree with anything I said, you can come talk to the military about it, which I control. Okay? And at the exact same time, Chiang Kai-shek launches the Northern Expedition. July 1926. He's clamping down on the communists, reasserting the primacy of the Nationalist Party, and then striking out to the battlefield to prove his worth in battle. I'm going to win the victories that are going to vindicate all of my policies. Okay, so where do they go? They start in Guangzhou in the distant south with the officers and military trained in the Wampo Academy and with Soviet aid. They first conquer the warlords of, Huna, of the province of Hunan in the south and the major city of Wuhan are both conquered by August of 1926. Then they hit a critical fork in the road. Where do we go from here? We're midway through the south. Okay, the Soviet advisors are telling Chiang Kai-shek, we, we think that you should go straight up and continue on northward. Because you need to take out the Manchurian warlord Zhang Zuolin, and you need to take out Feng Yuxiang in the northwest. Okay, these are the two most powerful warlords in China today. Zhang Zuolin in Manchuria, and Feng Yuxiang in sort of north-central, northwest area of inner China. All right, and once you've neutralized them, once you've defeated their armies or forced them to surrender, then you can, you know, sort of circle round back to the south and take out the warlords of the Yangtze River Basin. Okay, don't take on the Yangtze River Basin right now. There's a warlord named Sun Tuan Fang right there. Don't take on Sun Tuan Fang right now. All right, wait till the end. You need to get up and take the north first. Don't use, you know... Put all of your marbles in the south and then find you don't have the resources to march onwards to the north. Take out those northerners first. They're the strong ones. They're the ones you really have to worry about. And then the southerners will fall. And then you can come back and get the coastline. Okay? Chiang Kai-shek says, no, 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 no. My strategy is going to be different. I'm going to go straight for the Yangtze River Basin. Take out Sun Tuan Fang immediately. Because this will enable me to capture the wealthy cities of Shanghai and Nanjing. Nanjing will be my new political base. Shanghai will be my new financial base. And I'm going to remain close to my base of power in Zhejiang province. Remember, that's where Chiang Kai-shek comes from. It's the province just south of Shanghai. Okay? He says, I want to make sure that I shore up my money and my political loyalty by staying close to the south and by taking over Shanghai, where all the foreigners, where all the banks are, that's where all the money is, is in Shanghai. you got to be close to that. All right. And Nanjing is going to be a new political center that I'm going to create, and we're going to relocate the capital from Beijing. So this is what he does. Fighting is intense and slow, but Sun Quanfang falls in March of 1927. Okay. He falls in March of 1927, but like with so many other warlords, he's not obliterated. Okay. Most of his armies will end up surrendering. Once they realize they're going to lose, uh, warlord armies don't have a whole lot of ideological indoctrination. They don't have a whole lot of discipline. 
They're not going to, if they, they, they think they're going to die, they're going to put their arms down and surrender. Okay, and the warlords too, many of them will surrender and say, okay, 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 you got me, you got me. Give me a uniform, give me a flag, and I'll, and I'll raise the new flag of your party, um, and I'll take the oath, whatever you want me to do. All right, they don't really truly believe in any of this. They're just, you know, sort of doing it as a chameleon. And this is going to hurt later on. It's going to dilute the discipline, the ideology, and the cohesiveness of the party. This is a recurring theme in the Nationalist Party. Get used to this. Over the next 20 years, the Nationalist Party will succeed on the battlefield. They will succeed in their political aims, but at the cost of being forced to incorporate all these warlords into their, their umbrella. And these warlords will dilute the effectiveness, the leadership of the Nationalist Party. Okay. Now, at the same time that Chiang Kai-shek consolidates his control over the South, over Hunan, over Zhejiang, over Shanghai, over Nanjing, he says the time has come to purge the CCP. This first coalition is over. He says they are expanding their agitation. They are creating mass movements among the peasants now, among workers in the cities. These are skyrocketing. We're fighting the military battles. We're winning on the battlefield. And every single time that we take a new city, that should be a political victory for us. But it's only a military victory because then the CCP comrades go in there and they start agitating among the people and gain popular support. This isn't right. We're doing all the fighting and they're gaining popular support at our expense. And this mass movement success of the CCP cadres begins to frighten the conservative camp of the GMD. And Chiang Kai-shek is now increasingly in that conservative camp. So he takes the base of the government from its temporary base in the city of Wuhan, a little bit more west on the Yangtze River, and he moves it to Nanjing, leaves the leftist wing of the party over in Wuhan, takes his rightist, more conservative sympathizers over to Nanjing, and then gives the orders for what becomes known in history as the White Terror, April 12th, 1927. Nationalist troops, along with the support of what's known as the Green Gang, sort of this underground gangster organization that uh, was sympathetic to Chiang Kai-shek, uh, rounds up known and suspected Communist Party members and executes them in the streets. A brutal suppression. Brutal, heartless suppression of the Communists. There had to be a better way, right? No. Chiang Kai-shek went the path of violence. And if you go online, type in pictures of white terror in 1927, you'll see all these ghastly images of people being executed in the streets, brains blown out. And yeah, they probably got a lot of people who are members of the Communist Party, but they also just got a lot of people who someone wanted to settle scores with. And they said, you know, I suspect you of being a communist. That's all the evidence you needed to blow their brains out in the streets. Okay. After the white terror of April 12th, in which, you know, anyone who is, is or is suspected to be a communist is arrested and often executed, uh, that, that destroys the CCP, essentially. They are in disarray, okay? Uh, they don't know where to go next, who to listen to. Obviously, Chiang Kai-shek's trying to kill us, um, and many of them flee into the countryside and try to regroup and look for new directives from, from Moscow. What do we do next? Okay, because the CCP 
camp is in utter disarray after the White Terror. The First Coalition is definitively over. With the White Terror, we begin the era that is known as the Nanjing Decade. All right, the Nanjing Decade. The Nanjing Era begins in 1927. After the White Terror, Chiang Kai-shek formally proclaims the, the founding of a new central government. Okay, the central government will be, re, will be relocated from Beijing to Nanjing in the south. He is able to get the Manchurian warlord to agree to come to Beijing for talks with the nationalists to see how they might be able to come to some sort of an agreement about how their two forces will be able to work together and gradually integrate to one another. Uh, en route to Beijing, Zhang Zuoling's uh, train will be bombed by the Japanese, who are terrified by the idea that the uh, Chinese warlord of Manchuria, which they covet, uh, remember the Japanese, remember your, you know, the earlier episode on uh, uh, China versus Japan by the 1920s, the Japanese have uh, ownership of the South Manchurian Railway, uh, which goes through Manchuria, and they're using that to sort of exert their influence on Manchuria, and they always saw Zhang Zuolin as sort of their warlord, where we're going to work with him, and he's going to facilitate our influence. And when Zhang Zuolin decides to go to Beijing to talk with Chiang Kai-shek and, you know, discuss how we might incorporate ourselves into the new nationalist government, they bomb his train. We do not want reproachment between the warlords and Chiang Kai-shek that will spell doom for foreign influence in China. Okay. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek also kicks his, his Soviet advisors out of the Nationalist Party. So he's got the communists are gone, the Soviets are gone. Um, and as far as he's concerned, uh, Zhang Zuolin being killed by the Japanese wasn't all that bad of a thing <laughs> because Zhang Zuolin was very independent and autonomous and strong-willed himself and was very unlikely to accept full oversight from the Nationalist Party. So him being killed actually kind of works out for Chiang Kai-shek quite well. By 1928, by summer of 1928, China is nominally unified once again. Warlords throughout the land, all the way to distant Xinjiang, have given formal statements of support, have flown the Nationalist Party flag from their flagpoles, and they say, we're all going to work together now. We're all going to work together to recreate a strong China. The warlords say, we'll work for national unity within the GMD umbrella. The foreigners say, Wow, you guys have really made a lot of progress. It looks like you have a new progressive government in power with a military strongman, uh, Chiang Kai-shek. We will promise to gradually relinquish our imperialist privileges as progress permits. Okay, now we see you guys are taking back the reins ever so slowly of domestic Chinese politics, reunifying the land. Once you show us that you're growing up and you can take care of things, uh, we will gradually relinquish our imperialist privileges. Okay, Most foreigners liked Chiang Kai-shek. They felt reassured by his bloody crackdown on labor and peasant organizations. They felt reassured by the white, by the white terror. Ah, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. We don't like communists either. Okay? All non-Russian foreigners, not all non-Soviet foreigners, also feared the so-called red hand of Bolshevism in China. And they liked the idea that the new ruler of China 
was a was more conservative. Okay? Conservative was predictable. Right? You knew what he wanted and you knew how he was going to go about it and you knew that he wasn't going to adopt any sort of radical social or economic platform. Now, what were the consequences of the Northern Expedition? All right, let's start with the Communist Party. The Communists are going to be driven out of all major cities and shorn of all military strength. They're finally going to realize, oops, you know what we forgot to do? We forgot to get control of the military. That was a big oversight, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and next time, let, 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 let's make sure we have a few guns in our control before we start to wrest power away from the Nationalist Party. Big oversight on our part. All right. Mao Zedong's a nobody. Don't start thinking about Mao Zedong. He's a nobody at this point. Okay, he's working in rural areas, too. He wasn't really all that close or accepted by many of the top members of the, of the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Most of the top members were people who had been to Moscow, who had direct uh, relationships with Soviet advisors. All right, and they were very standard Marxist. Mao Zedong is out in the countryside uh, undertaking land surveys and er- interviewing peasants in his home province of Hunan. And he's saying, you know what, I think we need to work not in the cities. It's not going to work for a place like China. We need to agitate in the countryside more because we're an overwhelmingly rural society. All right. And the people in the cities are saying, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, whatever. All right. Marxism is supposed to take place in cities. That's where the proletariat is. With no proletariat, there's no socialism. Okay. And even though the Communist Party members have now dispersed from the major cities, Moscow, Soviet advisors, are still telling the remnants of this shattered party to go back into the cities. Because that's their model. Alright, the Bolsheviks seized power in cities, and their power base was always in cities. And so obviously they follow their own model when they tell the Chinese, get back in the cities! Don't tuck tail and run to the countryside! That's the wrong way to, 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 to develop socialism. You get your ass back into that city and you brave execution and you go undercover and you try to foment revolution in factories. That's how communism works. That's how it's going to get started. And so they do. You have these men uh, who are listening to the Soviet advisors, men like Li Li San, who are going to continue to undertake failed attempt after failed attempt to emulate the Soviet experience among an urban proletariat. And it's not gonna work. Meanwhile, Chiang Kai-shek knows that he didn't totally annihilate the communists. They're still out there. And for the next 10 years until the Sino-Japanese War, the second Sino-Japanese War, the CCP is constantly on the run, on the verge of annihilation, in search of both a military and a base. And they keep trying to come back into the cities instead of consolidate and work in the countryside. That's going to be Mao Zedong's major innovation, but it hasn't really gained acceptance within the Communist Party yet. Okay, more on that in the next episode. What about the consequences for the nationalists? Well, the GMD, in the course of their northern expedition, they had to absorb a lot of warlords. They defeated a few, okay, but they never really defeated warlords entirely. Alright, they always... Had felt that they had to incorporate warlord armies into their ranks and ally with the warlord leaders and never really could completely sideline them. All right. And part of this was because of foreign influence in China. At this point, we're mainly talking about Japan. Okay. One reason why the nationalists were basically stopped their conquests the area where they're going to be able to exert direct administrative control, they stop it just a little bit north of Shanghai and Nanjing. They don't go all the way to the north. They don't go all the way to the northwest. 
Because what happens is the further they get north, they start running in to Japanese military that's stationed in cities that have large Japanese merchant communities. There's an incident that takes place in the Shandong city of Jinan. In the Shandong's, you know, a little bit south of Beijing, on the way to Beijing. They're marching towards Beijing. And in Jinan, the Japanese say, whoa, 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 here they come. Here come the nationalist armies. Uh, We have a big Japanese community in Jinan. Are we going to let them come in? No. On the pretext of protecting our merchants, we're going to send in the Japanese military. Under the, the treaties, we're allowed to do that. And they send in the Japanese military to stand guard. And they say, we're just here to protect our, uh, our, our, our own citizens. You can come in if you want. But the unspoken subtext is clear. If you come in and there's any accidental bullet that comes anywhere near one of our soldiers and you kill one of our soldiers, we're going to kick your ass. And Chiang Kai-shek gets the message and he retreats from Jinan and says, we're not going to go any further because we're not ready to confront the Japanese. So he's never able to carry out complete conquest of other warlords. He has to incorporate them. And oftentimes, these warlords will get to keep their own chain of command and only accept superficial GMD titles and reorganization. And when push comes to shove later on, and believe me, push will come to shove later on, especially during World War II, these warlords will continue to place their own interest above the interest of the Nationalist Party. Okay, case in point, the warlords Feng Yuxiang and Yan Xishan, two very powerful warlords in north-central China, uh, after accepting nominal Nationalist Party titles and reorganization in 1928, the very next year in 1929, they'll renew hostilities with Chiang Kai-shek and attack him and go on the battlefield. And he'll have to send troops out again and they have a big battle. Okay, that's what the warlords are going to do. You think Chiang Kai-shek's own lieutenants are going to do that? No, they're not. And then again, in 1936, we're going to talk about this later, Chiang Kai-shek will be kidnapped by Zhang Xueliang, the son of the Manchurian warlord Zhang Zuolin, who was, whose train was bombed and killed by the Japanese. His son Zhang Xueliang will take over the administration of Manchuria, and he'll give lip service. He'll join the Nationalist Party. Okay, but he too is an outsider, and he'll never be quite totally incorporated. And he'll actually be convinced by 1936, that we need to kidnap Chiang Kai-shek to get him to fight the Japanese and not, and, and not the communist. That's an incredible act of insubordination. All right? This is the, 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 these are the consequences from what is often referred to as the aborted revolution. This is the name that is given to the nationalist activities of 1926, 27, and 28. All right? The Northern Expedition. The Northern Expedition doesn't really get all the way to the north. <laughs> okay, think of it that way. The failure, the ultimate failure, there's a lot of successes in the, northern, in the northern expedition, but the success of the northern expedition is mostly in the south, south of the Yangtze. The failure of the northern expedition is the failure to reach the north. It's a good mnemonic device, actually, to be thinking about the significance of the northern expedition. Okay, and when you get to the Second World War, you're going to find out. And then in the Civil War in the late 1940s, again with the communists, these warlord, these loosely incorporated warlords that you couldn't totally defeat and then sideline and force them to retire and have no role in politics whatsoever, they don't coordinate well with other, with other units. They aren't as professional. They aren't as disciplined. They may hold back from battle altogether if they think it's not in their interests. Okay? Graduates of the Wampoa Academy would not do that. 
graduates of the Wampo Academy would do whatever the hell Central Party Command told them to do, all the way until death. Okay. The other consequence, Japan is as strong as ever. Okay, Japan is as strong as ever, and alone among the foreign imperialist powers, Japan is saying, we're not going to relinquish our imperialist privileges, you've got to be kidding me. The other foreign powers have other, par- have other colonies elsewhere in the world. Britain has uh, India, and, and a lot else. France has Indochina, you know, Southeast Asia. You guys all have colonies everywhere else. You can gradually give up your interest in China. We don't. China is live or die for us. And we, if we retreat from China, if we give up our privileges in China, we have nowhere else to go. Korea and Okinawa and Taiwan are not enough. Okay, so Japan is openly hostile. Openly hostile to the nationalist government. The Soviets are pretty damn hostile to the nationalist government as well, as you might expect, kicking out their advisors and cracking down on their, their beloved favorite child in China, the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, and the problem here with Japan is that the nationalists, their own rhetoric, their own pronouncements, stir the Chinese public, that Chinese nation, into an anti-imperialist frenzy. We're going we're gonna to reclaim China's pride, China's sovereignty. We're going to kick out the foreigners. Okay, that's rousing, th- that's rousing rhetoric to broadcast. But unfortunately, they're still too weak to actually stand up to Japan. For all of his accomplishments, Chiang Kai-shek in 1928 is still essentially in the same position as President Yuan Shikai was 13 years before in 1915. Okay, when push comes to shove, you can't go to war with Japan because they will annihilate you. All right, and this is going to be the central tension of the next 10 years, the Nanjing era, in which the capital is in Nanjing. Chiang Kai-shek is trying to, to, to build an army that can do what? That can finally stand up to the Japanese. All right? And how that drama plays out, the promise and the disappointment of the Nanjing decade, we will explore in episode 34 of Beyond Huaxia. Music